Yeah. Whitney, don't go far. She, 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 all weekend, she's trying to escape off the stage before I mention this, but that was a kazoo she was playing. The coolest, coolest use of a kazoo in the history of the universe right there. Right, there she goes. All right. And then, then, then Moser's over here playing two keyboards and singing at the same time. I, that blows like, I don't know how many, that's like right, right brain, left brain, center brain, every piece of brain, I guess, has to be involved in that. I don't, I don't understand that at all. Uh, as you might imagine, I contribute a little bit to the title of this series. I really love the title of this series because in my experience, there's nothing more exhausting in all of life. No physical endeavor is more tiring uh, than wrestling, not running a marathon, not lifting weights, not marriage, nothing. Um, let slip that one in. Uh, you, nothing's more exhausting than just you and another person using no weapons against one another, just your, your bodies locked in, in battle. And every person in this room has at different times wrestled, wrestled with God. And even if you're in here today and you're going, I actually don't believe in God, I would bet by your presence here in this place today that perhaps you're wrestling with whether there is a God or isn't a God or not. And then those of us in this room, and we've resolved that, we, we believe there is a God. There's a lot of us in this room right now who we are, it's not that we have wrestled with God, it's that we are currently right now wrestling with God. And because wrestling is exhausting, we are exhausted. See how that that works. And one of the things I love about the Bible is there's, there's so many people in the Bible that I can relate to. Their sin, their shame, their struggles, their weaknesses, their strengths. When you finally realize that uh, the people in the Bible are not Bible characters and they're not Bible heroes, they're not superheroes with superhuman capabilities, they're just flawed human beings like you and me. They are real people. The Bible really, really opens up because we realize these are people just like us. And today I want to look at one of those people that I've related to for a long, long time. And second to Jesus in the Bible, he's my favorite person in all the Bible. His name, is, his name is Elijah. I named my firstborn son after him. That's how significant this, this person's story is to me. Even though he lived almost 3,000 years ago, his wrestling match with God is very, very similar in many, many ways, not always, but many ways, to my wrestling match with God. So to kind of set the stage for this, I, I don't know if you saw uh, the most recent Mad Max movie. Somebody described it as being uh, punched in the face for two hours, and I'll be on, that's what it felt like. It, maybe you saw the old ones, but I want, you to, I want you to picture that kind of post-apocalyptic context where everything has degenerated to the worst possible end. Okay, where, where it's all evil all the time, there is no good, there is no redemption, everything is falling apart, everything is brutal, everything is aggressive, everything is evil all the time, and it's overwhelming, and you will begin to scratch the surface of the context that Elijah lived in. Okay, so let me, let me set this up even a little bit more. The, the nation of Israel had this, this great history and heritage, and, and it had some extreme ups and some extreme downs, but it's, it's at its apex, at its most significant moment in its history, was probably during the reign of King David and his son, King Solomon. Things were going really, really well. They, they were the most prosperous during this time. They had the most influence in the world during this time, from culture to architecture to all kinds of different things. But then, towards the ends of, end of King Solomon's reign, the Bible tells us that his wives, and he had a lot of them, several hundred to be exact, he, his wives turned his heart away from the one true God, and he began to worship uh, the gods from, of, of the women that he married who came from all over the world, and the gods that they worshipped in those different areas of the world. And as go leaders, so go the people of the country. And not long after King Solomon died, the, the country went into disarray and actually split into two different kingdoms. So then there was the northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel, and then the southern kingdom, known as Judah. And the northern kingdom uh, had some horrible kings. In fact, 19 straight 
horrible, horrible kings. And when I say horrible kings, I don't mean like kind of bad, like people didn't like their foreign policy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about mass murderers, evil thugs. That's what I'm talking about, okay? The southern kingdom didn't fare much better. They had a couple good kings sprinkled in. But in the midst of this long succession of evil kings in the northern kingdom, we meet this guy named Ahab who becomes the king of Israel. And it says about Ahab that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of the kings who went before him, which is saying a lot. And then for the very first time in this laundry list of evil kings, we get to meet one of those kings' wives. We get to meet Ahab's wife. Ahab entered into an alliance with the king of a neighboring nation known as Sidon. And he did that, which was a kind of a customary thing, by taking his, this man's daughter to be his wife. Of going, okay, now we're tied together, we're family, we, we can't fight against one another. And this, this woman's name famously is Jezebel. And in Jezebel's hometown in Sidon, they worship primarily the false god known as Baal, who was thought to control the seasons and be the god of rain. They also worshiped his, who they considered to be his mother, the goddess Asherah, who was considered like a, a goddess of fertility. And so the, the leader Ahab was really then from that point on controlled by his domineering wife, Jezebel, who led him to worship Baal and Asherah, so much so that the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah were welcome to eat at the king and queen's table in, in the palace any time that they wanted to. So things have gotten really, really, really bad. Things have taken a really big turn for the worse. People's hearts have, have turned away from the one true God. Things are about as evil and horrible as they can possibly be. And as God often did in the history of the nation of Israel, he would, he would send a person, usually a prophet, to sometimes gently and sometimes firmly remind the leaders of the country and the people of the country to turn their hearts back to the one true God. And God does this because God understands that what's best for us is not to follow false gods who can't deliver on their, on their promises. So into this mess and into this mayhem enters Elijah and his name is significant the name Elijah means my God is Jehovah or the Lord he is God that's what his name means we're going to see him enter into this into this story now right right before I tell you the story I need to give a disclaimer all right if you're in here today and you're not a follower of Jesus you're not a Christian Listening to this story is going to be kind of like going to a movie. You're, it's going to require some suspension of disbelief for you, okay? We're going to run across some crazy supernatural things that happen almost at every turn in this story. And you may be going, I don't believe that. There's no way that could ever happen. That's fine. You don't have to believe that that happened. But you will find something, if you'll hang with me in this story, that you can identify with in your story in your life. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian, you may be wrestling with some of the same things today, and I would, I would give you the same challenge. Let, let me just let you into the way my simple brain works, all right? My simple brain works this way, okay? When I look around at the universe, when I look at the, at the stars and the sun and the moon, and I look at the oceans and the mountains and all those creative things that we see in, out there in the, in the world and in the galaxy, when I see creativity, my brain says, well, that demands a creator. When I see the intricacy of design that we see all over, nature look at the human eyeball look at whatever you want to look at when I see design my brain says well that demands a designer so I believe that that creator and that designer is the one true living God that we see revealed in the Bible so the way my brain works is simply this if God can do all of that then the things that we're going to read about in this story are absolutely no sweat for him that's the way my brain works all right so let's dive into this story if you got your Bibles you can follow along with me I'm just going to tell you the story it's way back in the Old Testament it's first Kings chapter 17 is where we're going to start and then we're going to take this journey all the way through chapter 19 this is a great story you can go home and read it today if you want but I just kind of want to tell it to you today all right so it's, it begins this way 
Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead. Ooh, that sounds exciting, right? So, so basically what this means is Elijah, with this very significant name, comes from a very insignificant place. We don't know where Tishba was. Nobody's ever found the ruins of Tishba. We do know that Gilead was basically a wilderness, backwoods area of Israel. All right, so in our brains, go to whatever stereotypical backwoods state that you want to kind of consider, all right? I threw out a bunch of them last night, and a bunch of people from those states got very angry at me, all right? Nebraska, Kansas, Arkansas, okay, all right? Consider some of those places, all right? And people from Gilead were not known for their tact or their political correctness. Um, They were not known as being gentle people. They were known as being rough, rugged people and it says that Ahab the Tishbite from Tishba uh, from Gilead presents himself to Ahab it doesn't say he asks permission to go before the king it doesn't say he follows any kind of procedure he doesn't put in an official inquiry or request may I have an audience with the king no it's none of that it says he just presents himself to Ahab so we don't know if he accosts him on the street one day we don't know how that works and here's what Elijah says he goes listen bro and anytime I say bro today that's my addendum to the original Hebrew okay so so listen, bro, it's, I worship the one true living God. I'm here to tell you today, it's not going to rain for the next several years until I say so. And then he like drops the mic and walks off. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very, very cool moment. All right. That's a, that's a very brave thing to say to somebody who worships the God who's supposed to control what? Rain. He goes, no, 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 uh-uh. It's not going to rain until I say so. That is a, that is a brave moment. That, that had to be an adrenaline rush for Elijah. I mean, he's got to be amped up in that moment where he confronts one of the most powerful people on the planet. And I'm telling you, if I'm Elijah in that moment, I'm, I'm going to God going, God, what's next? What do you want me to do? You want me to like, you want me to like have a fist fight with, with Ahab? What, what, what do you want me to do? I'm here, I'm ready, I'm, let's do this, God. Come on, let's go. And God says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and goes, I need you to go hide. I'm sorry, what? I thought we were just getting this ball rolling. I thought we were just gonna, I thought we were setting this thing off. Like, what's, what's going on? You want me to hide? God, God, God says, I want you to go hide. I want you to go east of the Jordan and I'm gonna, you're gonna hide by this little brook, this little stream in this place called Kareth. The word Kareth literally means to be cut down. It's, it's almost as if God needs to cut Elijah down to size before he can give him his next project. It's almost as if Elijah is going to get really, really full of himself if God doesn't put him into an intentional training program to teach him a couple things. And, and the couple things that he's teaching him at Kareth go like this. He tells Elijah, uh, you'll, it's not going to rain for a while, so you're going to drink water from that brook, and then I'll provide you with food day and night, morning and evening. You're going to get a special delivery of food from ravens. So think about this, all right? Elijah's a Jewish man. He's going to eat the regurgitated food out of the mouths of scavenger birds. You know what? That's not kosher. <laughs> That's humbling. That's humiliating. It's, again, God is cutting Elijah down to size, to size. Now, to Elijah's credit, we don't get any evidence that he protests. We don't get any evidence that he argues or wrestles with God in this moment. It just says he did what God told him to do. And he, he goes to Kareth and, and he hides for a while and we don't know how long it was we just know it was many days and but but because it's not raining it says after many days the brook dried up and at that point the word of the lord it says this several times throughout the story the word of the lord came to elijah and said go to zarephath i've appointed a widow there who's going to take care of you 
Now, again, time out. If I'm Elijah, I would, I would call a little time out and ask out a few questions here because Zarephath is in a nation called Sidon. That's Jezebel's hometown. So I might be inclined to go, hey, God, thought I was hiding from her. You, you, want, me to, you want me to go to her hometown? Oh, that doesn't really seem to make any sense to me. But again, we don't, we don't get any indication that Elijah argues with God, wrestles with God, any of that. He, he goes and he obeys. And sure enough, when he, gets to, when he gets to the town gates, he sees this, this woman collecting some wood, collecting some sticks. And he says to her, hey, could you give me a drink of water? He's been on a journey for a while. He's probably very thirsty. Water's very, very scarce. She says yes. And he goes, hey, could you, also, could you also bake me some bread while you're at it? Now, that is not a very, you couldn't get away with that in Western culture. You don't just walk up to a woman and go, hey, hey woman, bake me some bread. Ugh, that's not going to go well for you all right try that today and email me let me know how it goes for you all right but in in the in the middle east culture of hospitality is actually a very very normal thing for for strangers to make these types of requests and people to to say yes you can be welcomed into my home and so she goes well here's the thing i was actually out gathering um sticks so that i could make a fire and i just have a little bit of flour left a little bit of oil left i was going to make one last little little bit of bread for me and my son and after that we have no plans for survival this is all we have left Elijah says, trust me on this one. As surely as the Lord my God lives, as long as you take care of me, as long as, as, long as you're with me, it will never run dry. You'll never run out of flour. You'll never run out of oil. And she does this. I mean, she, she, she trusts him and she does this, provides for him. And as, as long as he stays with them, it never runs dry. It says it provides enough for her household and for Elijah who stays in this upper room in her house. We, again, don't know how long they're there. We, we know he's there for quite a while. And she has this son and this son of hers one day gets very, very sick, and it says he grows sicker and sicker until finally he dies. And then this woman turns on Elijah and goes, seriously, this is the payment I get? Is this what you're after? Oh, man of God, to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Is that, is that the whole purpose of you being here? And Elijah, for the very first time, has a big problem with God that we're told about. He says, give me the boy. He takes this, this dead boy in his arms. He lays him down, and he has a wrestling match with God, Elijah does. Basically, he goes, what's the deal, God? Why would you do this? Why would you kill this woman's son? Why would you allow this to happen? She's done everything that she's been told to do. She's provided for me. Why would you do this? And then Elijah prays an unprecedented prayer. We have, we have no evidence that in all of human history in the Bible that, that anyone at this point in history has been raised back to life after dying. And yet that's what Elijah asks God to do. And God does it. Elijah brings this boy and presents him back to his mother. And his mother responds to Elijah by going, now I know for sure you're a man of God and I can trust the words that are in your mouth says in the third year so now three years of no rain has gone by the word of the lord comes to elijah and says you're going to go present yourself to ahab all right now things are getting really really interesting after a three-year process so elijah begins this this journey from sidon back to the northern kingdom of israel meanwhile uh, things have gotten so bad in israel because of no rain uh, that ahab and one of his trusted servants who oversees his palace a man named obadiah they've actually um, met with one another and said all right here's what we got to do we got to go out me and you separate ways and we got to look all throughout the country to see if we can find some grass some water anywhere so that we can graze some of the king's flocks so that we don't have to slaughter all our animals before they before they starve and before they dehydrate and die and so so you have the king of israel actually out searching for grass that's how bad things have gotten and his servant who oversees the palace obadiah is doing the same thing they go their separate ways obadiah goes out and as elijah's coming into into the nation of israel they they cross paths they run into one another and obadiah falls flat on his face before Elijah and goes is that you is that you and Elijah goes yes it's me in fact go tell your king that Elijah is going to meet with him today 
And Obadiah looks at him and goes, uh, you want me to do that without you or are you going with me? Because you got to go with me to do that. Elijah goes, no, you go, you go tell him and I'll meet up with him. And Obadiah goes, um, newsflash, Elijah, I don't know if you realize this or not, but ever since you had that little moment with Ahab where you dropped the mic and made the big statement and then it hasn't rained, everybody's pretty mad at you, okay? So you're the, you're the most wanted man in all of Israel and there's nowhere on the planet Earth that Ahab has not searched for you. And every time he's gone into someone's town or he's gone to someone's house, he's demanded that those people swear on their life that they're not hiding you and they haven't seen you. And if, he, if I go back to him today and go, hey, ran into Elijah today, you know, no big deal. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And by the way, Elijah, Obadiah goes, I'm on your side. I worship the one true God as well. While you were out doing your thing and Jezebel was going on this murderous raid of killing all the prophets of the one true living God, I took a hundred of them, put 50 in one cave, 50 in another, and provided food and water for them. So I'm on your side. Check my resume. Have you not heard about me, bro? And Elijah goes, Trust me on this one. Go back to Ahab and tell him, I will meet with him today. And Obadiah rolls the dice, trusts him, goes back to Ahab and says, listen, here's the thing. He promises he will meet with you today. Follow me, come with me. We'll run into him again, I promise. And so, so they do. He brings, he brings Ahab back. Elijah, set, Elijah meets with him. And, and Ahab looks at Elijah and he goes, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah just bravely looks back at him and goes, me? I didn't bring the trouble on Israel. You did and your wife did because you've turned everybody's hearts away from the one true living God. And you go after worship Baal and Asherah and all these other false gods. You're the troubler of Israel. And he goes, here's what's going to go down. I want to, let's ha- send out some invitations, Ahab. And make sure that you put first on your list those 450 prophets of Baal, those 400 prophets of Asherah, and tell them, I want to meet with them on Mount Carmel and invite everybody else from the nation of Israel to come spectate because we're going to have a little contest. And Ahab's like, all right, it's going down. Let's do this. And so they send out all the the invitations. Probably takes a few days for this to happen. They gather everybody back at 6 o'clock in the morning on Mount Carmel. And Elijah goes before the people, the people of Israel, And he says, how long will you go on, literally translates, limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. In other words, they've been hedging their bets. They've been playing it safe. They've just been trying to keep their head down. And what what Elijah is saying is, today we pick teams. Enough's enough. And he says, here's here's what we're going to do, all right? The 450 prophets of Baal, you're going to get a bull and you're going to make a sacrifice on your altar. And I'll get a bull and I'll make a sacrifice on my altar. And then we will both pray to our own gods. You pray to your God, I'll pray to my God. And the God who answers by sending fire on the altar and setting fire to their sacrifice is the one true God and we should all worship him. And everybody goes, that's a great idea. Now, time out. If I'm Elijah... I think I'd make it a rain contest. That seems like a more pressing issue right now than fire, okay? But what Elijah knows is this. Somebody out there would go, if it started raining, they'd go, well, you know what? I saw the weather report. I saw the 10-day outlook, and it said that there was a chance of rain today. I know I hadn't rained in three years, but it felt a little more humid in the air today, so maybe it was just a coincidence. Elijah wants to leave no doubt. Leave no doubt. So everybody goes, we agree. This is awesome. And everybody pulls up a seat, pulls up a chair, and watches. And Elijah goes, you guys go first prophets of Baal go first they slaughter this bull they put it on their altar and they begin to pray they begin to to make circles around their altar and pray and they they start to chant oh Baal oh Baal oh Baal plead and beg and dance and put on this big elaborate presentation and it says no one answered no one paid attention now 
That goes on from six o'clock in the morning until noon. And what I imagine, this is not in the story, all right, but I've always pictured it this way. What I imagine is that Elijah like pulls up a lawn chair and gets underneath of a tree and takes a nap. Lays back and then just kind of like wakes up every now and then to check on their progress and then goes back to sleep. And then at noon, Elijah wakes up from his nap, and this part's really in the Bible. He, he engages in the ancient act of trash talking, which is, again, one of the reasons why I love this man so much, okay? This is what he does. He wakes up from his nap, and I, again, I, this is not in the story, but I always picture he's got a little fruity drink in his hand with an umbrella, just enjoying his time. And he looks over and he goes, hey, shout louder. Try harder. This is there, I promise. Perhaps he's away. Perhaps he's on a, a business errand. Um, may, maybe he's asleep and you just need to rouse him. And this, the, the way it literally translates in the Hebrew, he says to them, maybe he's relieving himself. <laughs> maybe the, the NIV got scared and just said busy, all right? Um, Maybe your God's constipated and he's just having some problems. Give him some time, okay? Elijah goes back to sleep and goes, carry on, you know. It goes from funny to sad very quickly because for the next six hours, they intensify their ritual as they dance around this altar and beg and plead to their God who doesn't exist. They begin to slash their wrists, show their devotion to Baal. And imagine these men just working themselves up into a lather, passing out from blood loss and dehydration and exhaustion, praying to a God who doesn't exist, who can't deliver on what they demand that this God deliver on. And finally, Elijah calls a stop to it and goes, enough's enough. All right, everybody come here. Everybody leans in. Elijah takes his bull, he slaughters it has to build up the altar of the Lord because it's in ruins. It hasn't been used in so many years. He takes 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel to build into the altar. He puts the bull onto the wood. He doesn't set fire to the wood. And then he does something very curious. He digs a trench around the altar. Everybody's probably scratching their head going, what's he doing? And then he makes this weird command. He says, take those four large jars that you guys brought here for everybody's drinking water today, very valuable water, dump them out on top of the altar. And they do it. He says, do it again. Go fill it up. Do it again. Go do it again. Third time. All the valuable drinking water they got saturates this altar, soaks the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and fills up the trench around the altar. Again, why does he do this? Because he wants to leave no doubt. And notice the difference between the way that Elijah prays and the way that the prophets of Baal pray. He does no dancing. He does no wrist cutting. He does no presentation. He doesn't do a performance. He just humbly goes before God and goes, God, you're the one true living God. I am your servant. Make that known today to these people that you are turning their hearts back to you. Send fire on this altar, O oh God. Fire from heaven falls on this altar, consumes not only the sacrifice, not only the wood, but actually consumes the stones. And it says, literally licks up all the water that's in the trench around it. And everybody did exactly what they should have done in that moment. They fell flat on their face and they started saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God, which sounds a lot like Elijah, Elijah. Can you imagine the power of that moment? And in that moment, Elijah goes, enough, enough of the depravity and death and destruction that these people have led us into. Take these prophets, and you won't, some of you won't like this part of the story, but this is part of the story. Take these prophets of Baal down to this river and slaughter them there, and they slaughter all of them right there. And then he tells Ahab, go have your dinner. And Ahab has his dinner on the side of the mountain. 
Elijah says, go have your dinner because guess what? It's about to start raining and you're going to have to get out of here. Elijah goes and sits up on top of Mount Carmel. He brings a servant with him and says he puts his head between his knees. He's probably exhausted and he tells the servant, go look out towards the sea. Tell me if you see any clouds coming. The servant goes. He's like, no, there's, no, there's nothing coming. It's as clear as it can be like it's been for the last three years. He tells him to do it again and again and again, seven times, till finally the servant comes back and goes, I see a cloud like the size of a man's hand rising out of the sea. I mean, that, that's about it. Maybe, maybe my eyes betray me after looking so many times. And Elijah goes, go tell Ahab to get in his chariot and head back to Jezreel, his hometown, before the rain stops him because it's about to go down. Elijah Ahab. Ahab hops in his chariot, heads on back to Jezreel. Elijah, it says in the power of the Spirit of the Lord, actually runs ahead of Ahab's chariot as it's starting to rain. The sky grows black and it just becomes a monsoon. When Ahab gets back to Jezreel, he tells his wife, Jezebel, everything that's happened. Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah that says, May the gods deal with me ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like the life of one of those men that you slaughtered. Now, time out for a second. If I'm Elijah and I receive that message, I think my response would be, uh, bring it, babe. This is called down fire from heaven. Just slaughtered all your prophets. May the gods deal with you ever so severely? You mean the ones who didn't answer and didn't do anything? No, I don't think so. Whatever you got for me, bring it. I'm not afraid. But that's not the way the story goes. The next line actually says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Wow. He's afraid and he runs for his life. And he he doesn't just run. He goes to the southern end of the northern kingdom until he crosses the border into Judah. And then he, he leaves his servant, which is what we so often do when we're in depression and when we're in fear and when we want to hide is he isolates himself, goes another full day journey into, into the desert, sits down under, under a tree, and here's his prayer. God, I'm no, more, I'm no better than my fathers. I'm a nobody from nowhere just like they were. Kill me. That's his prayer. He goes to sleep. We don't know how long he sleeps, but I bet it was a while. He's awakened by an angel. That has to be terrifying. Every time somebody encounters an angel in the Bible, their first reaction is typically fear. The angel doesn't condemn him, doesn't yell at him, doesn't go, hey, God sent me to tell you uh, you're an idiot. That's not not what happens. He's prepared a meal for him, and he says, "You you need to eat and you need to drink. He eats and he drinks some water. He goes back to sleep, and then he's awakened again by an angel a little while later, and same drill, eat and drink, and this time the angel says, because the journey's too great for you. So he eats and he drinks, and, and then he's sent on this journey, 40 days and 40 nights, until he arrives at this very famous mountain called Mount Horeb. The same place that a man you're going to learn about next week, many years before Elijah, wrestled with God, a man named Moses. Elijah arrives at Mount Horeb, finds a cave to stay the night in, goes to sleep again, stays the night in the cave. The next morning, says the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and all, the only thing God says to Elijah, again, if I'm God, I'd be going, you idiot, what's the matter with you? You've got to be kidding me. How could you lose faith? How could you lose trust? How, why would you be afraid of this woman after all the things that I've done for you and provide and protect? That, that's what I would have done. I would have given him a very, very, very good and logical lecture. That's what I would have done. God speaks to Elijah and just says, what are you doing here, Elijah? A very good question. Elijah has the answer prepared. He's ready to go. <laughs> Elijah defiantly speaks back to God and goes, I'll tell you what I'm doing here. I've done everything for you. 
I've obeyed you at every turn. I've been zealous for you. They've killed all the Lord's prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they want to kill me too. <laughs> I don't know. If I, again, if I'm God in that moment, and he talks back to me that way, there's some more fire from heaven coming right now. <laughs> you know, it's not what he does. He goes, prepare yourself. I'm about to pass by. That's a terrifying proposition. Wait, wait, wait. What's that mean? You're going to what? What does that mean? Elijah... <laughs> understandably goes back to the back of the cave you know said there was this furious wind shook the whole mountain but God was not in the wind followed by an earthquake and it feel like the whole world was going to come apart but God was not in the earthquake followed by a consuming fire that just consumed everything on the side of the mountain but God was not in the fire followed by the way this literally translates a thin silence the way some bibles translated is to say a gentle whisper says the Lord was in the thin silence. Some of you have heard that before. It's very impossible to describe, but you, you've heard it, and you know it. And Elijah instinctively knew it as well. He covers his face, and he walks out to the mouth of the cave, and one more time, God speaks to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah sticks to his story. I've done everything for you. I've worked, more, I've worked harder than everybody else. They've killed everybody else, and now they want to kill me. God doesn't even address that. Just gives him a plan, gives him a purpose, and gives him a friend. He says, listen, I want you to go back the way that you came. You're going to anoint some new kings. One of those kings is going to be the one who's later going to take out Jezebel and Ahab, so don't worry about that. And on your way back, I want you to partner up with this guy named Elisha. He's going to be your friend for the rest of your life. You're going to be with him. You are not alone. Oh, and by the way, Elijah, you keep saying you're the only one left. Let me tell you something. I got 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed their knee to Baal. I'm okay. So, let me tell you just a few of the things that God's been teaching me through this story and as I've been kind of looking at my own wrestling match with God. Here's one of them. When I find myself in circumstances that I don't fully understand, I haven't learned this yet. I'm just learning it. I'm learning to ask this question. What is God potentially protecting me from right now? In the midst of this circumstance that I don't fully understand, could it be that God's actually protecting me from something that I'm unaware of right now? That's what, that's what God was doing with, with Elijah when he was protecting him at Kareth from Ahab and Jezebel, right? Here's another one. How's God providing for me right now? Again, thank Elijah at Kareth and Zarephath. How's God taking care of me right now in this circumstance that I don't like and I don't understand? Here's another one. How's God preparing me right now? What is he teaching me? What do you think God was trying to teach Elijah when he was at Kareth? When he was in Zarephath, how does a man arrive at a point in his life, a level of faith where he can actually pray, God, raise this boy back to life and believe it's going to happen? How, how does a man arrive at a point in his life where he can, he can defiantly stand before a hostile crowd and ask God to send fire from heaven at the risk of his life if God doesn't do it? I think that story began way back beside a little stream in Kareth when he was being fed by ravens. God is with you and God will provide what you need when you need it. That's what he was training him up with. That was the initiation process he was putting him through. Here's another one. It's important to be obedient even when it doesn't make sense. And as parents, we all say, yes, amen. Be obedient even when it doesn't make sense. The problem is we're all kids too. And from the kid perspective, we got questions first. 
We need clarity first. Before, before I obey, I need to understand and I need to see. But as a parent, we fully understand why obedience before understanding is so important because as a parent, we go, man, I need your obedience and then you can ask me questions because one day your obedience may be a life or death situation. I need you to be trained up in the routine of going obey first and then ask the questions. But as kids, that's not what we do. See, circumstances cloud everything and it makes it really, really difficult. But even in the midst of not understanding, here's another thing I'm learning. Doing the next right thing is always the best thing. That's always going to be obedience to God. Here's another one. It's often after our greatest victories that we are the most vulnerable. This is the time. Have you learned this one yet? I've seen this repeated, repeatedly in my life. Like those mountaintop experiences, things have gone really well. I've seen God move. Unbelievable things have happened. It's oftentimes right after that that the greatest temptation comes my direction. And listen, it's probably because that's those moments where you're the most tired. And when you're tired, you're vulnerable. Think Elijah at Mount Carmel. How did fear take over so quickly when Jezebel threatened him? He was exhausted. That's why. Here's another one. It's not about God's ability to speak. It's about our willingness to listen. If God wants us to hear, he can make himself heard. The issue at hand is our willingness to listen and obey. Think, think Elijah on Mount Horeb. There's got to be something that God is trying to teach us through the fact that he was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the fire, but he was in the thin silence. And maybe one of the million things he's trying to teach us in that is that there is tremendous value in being still and actually seeking to hear from God. Those are all bonus things. Here's the thing I actually really wanted to talk about today. Here's the one thing that God has been teaching me the past couple of weeks through this this story and again this is my favorite story in the whole bible so i've read it a few times i've taught it more times than i can remember but god's been teaching me something new that i've never seen in this story before and it goes something like this god has something for me to do but he doesn't need me to do it and that's going to land really heavy on some hearts in this room today because we like to think that we are very very needed especially by god but god was really clear to elijah you are not the only one left I got 7,000 people in Israel have not bowed to Baal. Translation, Elijah, with or without you, I got this covered. My plan is not dependent on your obedience. You see, Elijah suffered from a self-inflated view of his own self-importance, and so do I. I'm probably not the only one in this room who does. See, the symptom of that is the illusion that Elijah never seemed to shake until his encounter, his wrestling match with God on Mount Horeb, which is the illusion of being alone. And it is an illusion. And in many ways, that's the story of my life. God was teaching Elijah all along. You are not alone. At Kareth, you are not alone. I am with you. At Zarephath, you are not alone. I am with you. I'll provide what you need when you need it. So anytime in your life you find yourself saying like Elijah, I'm the only one. Guess what? You are not the only one. You are not the only one. Many of you were here several months ago. You remember how powerful it was when we took those little cards and we did those little anonymous surveys where we just checked yes or no on life experiences that a lot of us have had. And then we shuffled the deck and passed them back out. And then you received somebody else's card. And then I sat up here and I read them off. And I said, if your card says yes on this question, stand up. And then we looked around the room. Do you remember the power of that moment of realizing that we are not alone? You're not alone. But my wrestling match with God goes something like this. I believe I'm alone. At least I did for a long, long time. I don't know why that is. I, maybe, I grew up an only child. Maybe that's part of it. But I, I've always embraced the, the role of the Lone Ranger. I've liked that. I, I like being alone. I go it alone. I do it alone. I carry the weight myself. I actually seek being alone, sometimes in unhealthy ways and sometimes in healthy ways. But I like being alone. But what God was teaching Elijah all the way back at Kareth was this. Even when no one else is with you, I am. And I'm enough. 
But it's really easy in the midst of circumstances we don't understand to believe everything except that God is with us. Because if anything, what's indicated in our circumstances is that there's no way God could possibly be with us. And as Jim talked about last week, for some of us, it's because of what was done to us, something that happened to us. And it felt like God couldn't have been there and wasn't there and wasn't protecting us from somebody else. And that's a lot of the stories in this room. Some of you, though, in this room are like me. And it's the things that you've done that haunt you. And my resentment, my wrestling match with God goes something like this. God, you didn't protect me from myself. I can't see how you were present when I did that and in those moments where I really screwed up. And that may or may not make sense to some of you in this room. I'm not claiming that's right thinking. I'm just saying that was my thinking for a long, long time. My argument wrestling match with God went like this. You left me alone, God, and I did not do well, so I can't rely on you. I can't trust you, so I better be better and do better on my own. So I'll take it from here, God. I'll handle it. I'll take my sin and my shame and my regret and I'll stuff it down and I'll take it with me to the grave. I won't tell anybody about it. And I know your word says to do otherwise. I'll be happy to teach other people to do otherwise. I just won't do otherwise because I don't believe you. I'm different. I'm the only one. I'm the only one in the history of the world who your word doesn't apply to in this situation. You don't really desire me to be free from my past and my shame and my sin and my regret. And if I were to tell anyone about it, it would go really, really badly for me. And again, I know your word says otherwise. I'll be happy to teach everybody else that. I just don't believe you. That's what I believed for a long, long time, about 20 years or so. That was my wrestling match with God. And here's the other weird thing. The illusion... The illusion of being alone, and not only that, embracing it, leads to this misshapen perception of yourself. That you have this level of toughness and self-sufficiency that's unprecedented in all of human history. You don't need anything from anyone. You can do it on your own. You can fight all the battles, and that's exactly what you do. When your back's against the wall, just like the song said, you will come out fighting every time. See, I really did believe as a kid that I was the only one I was the only one who had divorced parents and it had zero negative impact on my life because after all, I was stronger and tougher than everybody else who liked to blame every, all their behavior issues and everything else and problem in their life on their parents' divorce. They're all weak and I'm very, very strong. Not me. Here's the, here's the other thing I'm starting to realize. I, I went on a trip last week with, with my family and it was awesome. And about five years ago, Allie and I took a vacation with, without our kids on our, right around our 10-year wedding anniversary. And at that point, I'd been doing ministry for 12 years. And at that point, we had three kids. Now we have four. And when we got on that vacation, we were on like day three. And after sleeping for almost the entirety of the first two days, we looked at each other and realized we didn't realize we were this exhausted. We didn't know until we had the opportunity to actually rest. And I don't mean tired. I don't mean tired. I mean that next level you can't even describe it level of exhaustion that so many of you resonate with and understand what I'm talking about when I say it. And, and we didn't realize it. And today, if I'm really, really honest, five years later, okay, approaching 15 years of marriage, 17 years of, of ministry and four kids and all of that, if you were to pass by me on a Tuesday at Chipotle or something like that and go, hey, Scott, how you doing? Most of the time I'd look at you and go, I'm good, I'm fine. And that's what we always do, Right? But if I were to be honest with you on that day, here's what I would say. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. Again, I can build a case for why. 17 years of ministry since I was 18 years old, taking 22 hours of Bible college classes and working in full time on the weekends at a church into, into, into marriage and four kids and, all, and coaching and all the other things that I like to do, okay? All the things that I love to do, the things that are present in my life are there because I love them. 
And I want to be a part of those things. None of those things are bad things. My marriage, my marriage is really good right now. My kids are awesome most days, all right? I, I love my kids. I, I love this ministry. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not, please don't hear me. There's no like crisis. I'm not going on sabbatical. I'm not resigning. None of that's happening today, all right? I, I have great balance in my work life and ministry. I think I'm pretty efficient with my work hours. It's not that one of those things makes me exhausted. It's just a lot. It's all of those things. I do them because, because I love them. And my response to exhaustion usually goes something like this. You're exhausted? Okay, run harder and run faster. Some of you do the exact same thing, and you know what that's called? Stupid. <laughs> Let's be honest, that's illogical. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, I'm tired. You know what I should do? Run faster. And I like to consider myself a logical person, but this is the most illogical discrepancy in my life. I don't, I really, I don't, again, I, I can't trace all this back. I don't know exactly why it is, but that's my tendency in all things. I can look at my whole life and see this show up everywhere. When something hurts, run faster. It's why I like working out at high intensity. It's why I like to grapple. If it hurts, push harder. When something gets difficult, hold up the middle finger, grab your shield and march into battle sign up to sign up to coach another team set more goals lift more weight read more books come up with more plans be more efficient do more do faster do it better than you did the last time and i think that's because i'm trying to prove something not to you not to anybody else not even to god i'm trying to prove something to myself i'm trying to prove that i'm enough we keep coming back to this around here don't we it's number one question everybody in this room has Am I enough? And my wrestling match goes like this. I never stop wrestling to ask God, hey God, am I enough? Because if I did, God would answer with, yeah, you're enough because Jesus is enough for you. I did everything for you that you're striving so hard to accomplish. It's finished. But I ask the question to myself, am I enough? And you know what I always respond with? Not even close. Work harder, try harder, do more, go faster. And that's what I do until I can't. See, that's the other option with exhaustion, right? Eventually, the run harder, run faster doesn't, you can't even do it anymore, so you give up and you quit, and you get mad in the midst of it. That's what Elijah did. He got really mad, didn't he? Really resentful, really bitter. Gave up and quit. Asked God to kill him, right? That's what Elijah did. And to be honest with you, that serves as a huge, like, warning shot across my bow, because that is the trajectory of my story if I, don't, if I don't come to terms with some of this, right? And I've seen it happen in my life at different times. Back in my, in my college days, my roommates used to get really, really mad at me because at least once every year, I, I would have this like full week where I would go to bed at like 6, 7 o'clock at night and then sleep all the way till 8, 9 o'clock the next morning, miss my early classes and things like that. And they would have to tiptoe around me in the room, couldn't play video games anymore and stuff. I mean, they would get so mad at me, right? And then fast forward to right now, there, there's a, a week every year where it's like my body just shuts me down and I have to go to bed at a really, really early hour and I just have to get more sleep because my body's going, you, you just can't do this anymore. Because my response to when things get hard is to run harder and run faster until I can't anymore. And Elijah got mad and got bitter and quit. And again, that could be my story if I don't come to terms with what God taught Elijah, which is this, I am not alone. Those of you who are like me in this room, you need to hear this. You don't have to fight alone. Your experiences are not as unique as, the, as you think they are. And one of the things that's been the most impactful in my life is looking around and realizing that God has put some people in my life by his grace who keep me going. Uh, one of which is my wife, who I've come to this realization over the past several years that she is my best friend and I can share my thoughts and my feelings with her. And that doesn't make me weak, contrary to the way that I've always thought and operated. And that along with a couple other men in my life who I know beyond a shadow of a 
doubt. They have my back and they want what's good for me and they will tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. And I don't need 20 of those men in my life. I just need a couple of those men and I have them by God's grace. God gave Elijah one. That's all he needed. Elisha. That's all he needed. But here's the biggest thing. God has something for me to do, but he doesn't need me to do it. God is not wringing his hands going, I sure hope Scott does what I tell him to do because if he doesn't, I'll have to go to plan B. Heaven and earth depend on Scott's level of obedience and him just working really, no, 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 no. So turns out I can rest. Did you notice in the story at least three times God allowed Elijah just to go to sleep? And how many times did God just feed Elijah? It's almost as if the creator of the universe knows how his creation operates best. Crazy. You need rest and you need food and you need restoration. So, strangely enough, it turns out that I'm not capable of being the super Christian, super husband, super father, super pastor, super friend, super coach, and super athlete that I want to be. And I want to be desperately all of those things. See, and I know for some of you in here going, that's just not my wrestling match, Scott. That's not my story. I didn't expect that it would be. But it is mine. It's my story. My story is not about lacking ambition. My story is not about not having goals. It's not about not having plans. My story is not about not being intentional. It's not about a lack of effort or vision or dreams. My story is not about not trying hard enough. My story is about allowing all of those good things that I want to be good at in my life to get out of control in my life and making those ambitions and those goals and those plans and those intentions ultimate in my life and then trying to accomplish all of that on my own and it's been exhausting. So maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe some of you can't. But that's probably why the central thing that God seems to be teaching me over the past several years is the thing that I keep telling you thousands of times now, which is simply this. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately that good thing becomes a very destructive thing. When good things become ultimate things, ultimately those good things become very destructive things. That may end up being the primary message of my ministry when they bury me and put me in the ground and we put it on my gravestone because God won't let me get away from it. You see, for me, there is this, let me be really honest, all right? There's not a huge temptation in my life to go on a drug-induced bender, kill 12 people, cheat on my wife, and leave my kids. It's not really on the forefront of the horizon, okay? I'm not saying I'm not capable, all right, especially the murder part, but (laughs) it's going to take several steps between where I am to get there, okay? So I can't really see that from here very, very clearly, okay? That's not my primary battle. My primary battle in my life has been taking the good gifts that God's given me and getting all infatuated with those gifts and forgetting all about the giver of those gifts. We try to draw from gifts what we can only get from the giver of those gifts. You know what that's called? Idolatry, worshiping a false god. See, idolatry, the way I define it, is simply trying to get from anyone or anything what you can only get from God. The false god you worship might be sitting next to you right now. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, ultimately that good thing becomes a very destructive thing. Maybe in the parking lot sitting out there, nice and polished. It may be in your wallet right now. Maybe the trophy sitting on your kid's shelf. That may be your false god. Turns out the way to be better at all the things that I want to be better at is going to require relying on God and resting more. So here's what I'm learning that actually means. It means trusting others and believe believe this. God is actually moving and acting in other people's lives too, not just you. So it turns out for someone like me, there's some battles I can just sit out. I don't have to fight every battle. Other people can go fight those battles. God's not relying on me for everything he needs to accomplish in this world. I need to be still and be quiet more often. 
Another thing is this, not just saying that God will provide, but actually living like I believe that's true, which for me means quitting the endless cycle of worry and pursuit of controlling all my own circumstances and the exhausting, never-ending pursuit of trying to prove to myself that I am enough. And this could go on forever today, so I'll just give you a few, a few last things and then we'll wrap up, right? Here's what I've been learning in my wrestling match with God. Here, here's some things. Write, write a few of these down. This is where I am. This is where you are. Not where you hope to be, not where you're afraid you might be, not where you want to be, not where you were. Not in the past, not in the future. No, right here, right now. You've heard the phrase before. Wherever you go, there you are. That's why running away never works. Right? But we do it. Here's another one. I'm not alone. Regardless of how lonely I feel or how unique my circumstances seem, I am not alone. At the very least, and this is actually the very most, God is with me. God is with me, and he is enough. But because God's a generous God, it's never, it's never just God. It's God and, and he will bring some people into your life if you're paying attention. Here's another one. I'm under his training. See, training indicates a goal. In other words, God has something in mind for you, and it goes like this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will. That's not up for grabs or negotiation. He will do it. Or these words originally spoken to people whose circumstances were, they were awful. They were taken captive. They were, they'd lost everything. They were victims. They were oppressed and they were angry and bitter and they were wrestling with God. And to them, he says, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jim and I, we read the same book last week, all right? It was a very bonding moment for me and Jim, and he recommended it. It was awesome. And so we, we read this book. So it's, a, it's a little book called uh, Making Men, very good book. And, and the, the author in it says something that applies to, to all of us, men and women. But I'm going to quote him directly because his audience in the book is directly towards men. But you will see, whether you're a man or a woman in this room, you will see how this applies to your story. Check this out and see if it doesn't sound familiar. Some guys spend their whole lives trying to impress God as if he loved them more if they performed like circus monkeys. But God's love for us is unconditional. He loves you whether or not you choose to serve him. Submission self-selects a man for adventurous missions in his service. Think of Elijah. But it does not make God love him anymore. He loves you when you fail. He loves you when you succeed. God will accomplish his will with or without you. In his amazing love, he wants you to join in his purpose. And here's the very good news. But God does not need a man like you. You need a God like him. That's true. Let's stand, let's pray together, and we'll worship. God, I pray for every exhausted, burnt out, beaten down, overwhelmed person that stumbled into this room this morning. I pray that you will speak in that thin silence, that gentle whisper, that familiar voice. You'll remind us first of who you are. You'll remind us of how you've provided, how you've protected, how you've been with us, even in circumstances where it didn't feel like you were doing any of those things. And God, you'll help us to rest so that we can rely on you for this moment and then the next breath after that and the next breath after that. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are, what you've done in our lives, and what you're going to do in the future. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.